Psalm 31, and I'll begin reading at verse 9, and I'll read through verse 16. Let us attend to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 31, beginning at verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God, I would simply ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do uh, something a little bit differently this morning. I trust it will not be distracting. I rather hope it will be somewhat encouraging. Um, many of you know, uh, most of you probably know, uh, the situation concerning uh, my wife, Lindsay. Um, she was life-flighted to uh, UNC from First Health about 12 days ago. And uh, they, on Wednesday... Uh, performed a, uh, a double lung transplant about 3 in the morning. It was about a 15-hour surgery. Um, and she has remained in or under anesthesia uh, for this whole time. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't seen her yet. I haven't been able to. And I haven't been able to speak with her. Uh, the doctors have uh, they've done, a, I think, a decent job of calling me and kind of uh, updating me on what's, what's going on. Uh, four or five times, I can't really remember exactly what it's been, they have uh, had to call and ask. Uh, they have to do an augmentation. They have to do a procedure. They have to do some type of operation. And they have uh, asked, basically asked my permission, or gotten my consent, rather, to do said, said operation. Uh, and not once, several times, they've had to, you know, they have to let me know that this is, you know, this is life-threatening, and they're, they're required to kind of let me know that. Uh, one doctor was a little more clear and let me know that kind of everything they're doing at this point is, is life-threatening. When, when that's been your week, uh, there are certain things that you just stop caring about. Um, I'm not sure it's in the rule book that I have to stand behind the pulpit, but I really don't care. Uh, I'm also not sure it's in the rule book that I have to write a sermon, like I have to have things written down. I don't, and I don't really care. Um, when, when your world is kind of surrounded, when your days are daunting and your nights are somewhat terrifying, uh, when, when the world just goes into, into a different focus, it just tr- kind of changes changes the way you think, 
It changes the way you prepare and write. I thought that I would spend some time this morning uh, talking to you about what I have learned concerning how to read the Bible this past week. When, when you talk to people about studying the Bible or reading the Bible or their teaching, I think it's a human proclivity. I think it's a, a tendency to try and make things clean, to try to make them tidy. I actually think most of the time people are trying to make things comprehensible. They would say apprehendable, but they're trying to make things comprehensible. And we, we want things comprehensible. We want to say that we understand things because then we can control things. Then we can manipulate things. We can pat ourselves on the back for thinking the right things and not thinking the wrong things. And oftentimes what I think happens is that as we, as we read the Bible, we read certain passages that are perhaps very familiar, very popular. We combine them with stories that are well-known, maybe that stand out in our imagination. And there's this tendency to reduce, to make things clean and orderly, tidy, wrap a bow on it and say, there, that's the Christian life. So one example. We read in St. Paul, he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. We obviously have the stories, I believe it's in Numbers 11, about the people who complained against God and against Moses. And the ground formed a mouth and swallowed them. Sounds like a bad idea. So we take some stories and some verses and we say, okay, the Christian life is a life of not complaining, or Christians don't complain. That may seem neat and tidy. It may, may make sense. But it's not, it's not doing justice, first of all, to your experience in life. And second of all, it's not doing justice to God's Word. I'm not sure you paid attention to our reading. It's hard to pay attention, church. Verse 9 through 13, it's a complaint. It's a complaint. And if you read closely, the prophets complain, psalmists complain. What does he say? I'm in distress. My eye is, is wasted from grief. My soul and my body, this isn't limited to my eye, this is affecting my soul, this is affecting my body. My life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails. My bones waste away. I become a reproach. Even, even my neighbors, the people that, are, people that are close to me, even an object of dread to my acquaintances, my family doesn't know how to deal with me. Those who see me in the street, they, they try to get away. They don't make eye contact. They kind of take the long route. 
I've been forgotten like one who is long dead. I'm broken. I hear the whispering, the scheming. The psalmist is complaining. I have a complaint. And if I were to write down this complaint, it might sound something like this. Why would God, why would you give a 19-year-old girl cancer? Okay, fine. Why would you allow her to get cancer? And why would you give a cancer or allow her to get cancer? That would be the best cancer to get, right? That's what I was told. If you're going to get a cancer, this is the best one. It's the most treatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why that one? And then why would you let it come back again and again? Why would you... Why would you have us be in a time period where the drugs that they would give her to, to cure her, to, to help get her healthy, would strip her of her vitality, take her hair more than once? Her identity is threatened. Even her identity as a mother sickness that doesn't, didn't allow her to go on walks with her kids. There was no strawberry picking or bouncing on the trampoline. Her identity as a mother was threatened. Her strength taken. And eventually her breath I remember during uh, early parts uh, of the chemotherapy, and I remember being in either college campuses or trying to be normal and go downtown to do something. I remember the stares. I remember the snickers, the laughter. That was my wife. People were mocking. If you've been sick, if you've dealt with physical infirmities, and even, to a sense, spiritual infirmities, you know, you know this feeling. Your neighbors don't know how to deal with you. An object of dread to your acquaintances. Family's not sure how to talk to you. How do you, how do you engage a young girl who's bald? How do you break through the awkwardness of a cannula or oxygen tanks? And, and some of you have experienced this. You've been, you've been sick, and when you're sick, when, you, when you're diseased, when there's something wrong, when you have a physical infirmity or a handicap, you get ostracized, and you get marginalized. It's not malicious. It's not on purpose. People just don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know where to be. This is a complaint. You have complaints. And I think, I think you need to find the space to complain. 
Because if you don't, your complaint will manifest itself in your life somewhere. It will incarnate itself in your life somewhere. Because life is hard and life is painful. It's unexpected. And if you don't find the proper voice for your complaint, it will manifest itself somewhere. It might manifest itself in you backhanding your kids around the house. It might manifest itself in an affair. It might manifest itself in you just hating your parents. Prophets complain. Psalmist complains. There's space for complaint. It's just important that we notice what the psalmist does with his complaint. Verse 14. He presses through until he gets to the conjunction. But I trust in you, O Lord. You have to press through to the conjunction. You have to press through until you get to the but. But. You see, this conjunction, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the reality of the suffering. It doesn't deny the existence of the misery. It doesn't say it's not happening. It doesn't say it's not hard. It doesn't say it's not unbearable. This, this conjunction, but... You say it even if you're not sure you believe it. But I trust in the Lord. The, the conjunction, it's just a moment of reflection. It's a pause that allows for another reality. You have to get there. You have to get to the conjunction. If you don't get to the but, if you don't get to the conjunction, it's just you. It's just a whole bunch of I's and my's and me's and woe is me's. It's just you. It's just you all by yourself. But if you press through to the conjunction, but I trust in the Lord. There's a break. There's a space for someone else. For someone else to enter. There's a space for others. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies, from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. I think the last words of Christ 
specifically the two that we read this morning. I think there's a complaint. My God, why have you forsaken me? And it seems, I don't think it's too far to say that Jesus is well aware of Psalm 31. Quotes from it, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I don't think it's stretching it to say that Jesus was familiar with the conjunction in Psalm 31. My God, why have you forsaken? Into your hand I commit my spirit. I think the death of Christ specifically, there's a complaint there. And yet Christ... Christ continued. And I think that the resurrection, which this table is a celebration of, the resurrection is God's conjunction. The death of Christ, but. I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. The resurrection is the great conjunction of God. It's, there's a pause. There's a moment for reflection. And then in breaks another reality. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Push through. Push through to the conjunction. Complain. <laughs> Find space for it. Prophets do. King David did. And just continue to move towards the conjunction. That space, that place where there's another reality. I'd ask the elders, deacons, the men who will serve to come forward at this time. Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sandhills Presbyterian Church. It does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's, and it belongs to all who have been baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Welcome in the name of Jesus.